Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Hi, this is Rob Dalrymple, and I want to welcome you to the Determined Truth Podcast. Today's podcast is from an introductory course on how to interpret the Bible that I presented in 2012. If you'd like the lecture notes to follow along with this presentation, I encourage you to log into my website, determinedtruth.wordpress.com. Click on the link on the left side of the page titled Alphabetical Listing of All Classes. And then find the class, Biblical Interpretation. That'll take you to the page with all the audio recordings as well as a, a substantial set of notes to help guide you through this course. If you like these podcasts, please subscribe and let others know as well. Thanks for tuning in, and here's our study on how to interpret the Bible. Father, we are... Um humbled again to be in the presence of of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. To be indwelt by the Spirit of God. To be amongst fellow brothers and sisters who share the same longings of uh, holiness and the desire to grow and the desire to uh, mature. The desire to be relevant to our society and our culture and our families and um, yet the desire to be different. So teach us, Lord, and be honored and glorified in our lives. Help us as we deal with a couple uh, somewhat complex things, with prophecy, for example, and help us to make it uh, plain and, and clear uh, and be able to move forward. We praise you and thank you for all things now. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Tonight we're going to jump into it. We're not going to start with any introductory conversations. Last week's was relative related to the issue anyways. Uh, did I do Proverbs last week? No? You could read this, and starting with point number three, which is point number one, that's Microsoft Word. It, it, let me just, very briefly here, Proverbs are just very practical, point number four here, not theoretically theological, they're brief, memorable sayings with wide applications, number six here, not to be taken as unbending rules. Very important. It's practical wisdom. That's not always true. What, what do you mean? Well, look. Proverbs 26, verse 4. Do not answer a fool according to his folly. He'll be wise in his own eyes. The next verse. Answer a fool according to his folly. Oh, you'll be like him yourself. They contradict one another. If they're absolutes, which one do you do? No, they're proverbial statements of, of wisdom. Uh, and there's much to learn from them. Um, but don't make dogma or doctrine out of it. For example, I see people go, oh, it says train a child in the way he should go, and when he's old he won't depart from it, and my child departed from it, therefore I didn't train him in the way he should go. It's my fault. And said, so, no, these are general truths, not absolute maxims. All right? And sometimes you could be the best parent of all, and it may or may not work out for the, for the well-being of your children. So, so don't take these as, as absolutes in any sense. All right. Number eight here, they're to be read as a collection, uh, and the collection is found in chapters one through nine. Uh, one through nine, basically, it's folly versus wisdom, and it's lady folly versus lady wisdom. So folly and wisdom are personified as women, all right? And if, that's why folly is an adulteress, and she lurks out there, you know, uh, whereas wisdom is, of course, this, the, the, the wonderful wife and the beautiful woman and all that uh, things there as well. All right? They're were to be memorable, not theologically or theoretically accurate. Some reflect culture, uh, so we have to contextualize them. How does that apply to our culture? Number 12, good advice, 
for wise approaches to certain aspects of life, but are not exhaustive in their coverage. So, all right, very good practical wisdom. How's that? All right, prophecy. Here we go. Let's go back a little bit now, and kind of give a little bit of a. And, a, and if I don't, if I miss something here, let me know. We'll spend most of our night on prophecy tonight. Uh, so make sure we, we, we clarify anything that you have hanging out there. But uh, Moses was a prophet. Moses was a prophet. Miriam was a prophet, his sister. Okay? But basically, prophets do not come about until uh, the 8th and 9th centuries. All right, now, what's the 8th and 9th centuries? Well, David is about the year 959, you know, somewhere in there. All right? 1000 B.C. So it's after the time of David, and here's and basically it's after the time of what we call the divided monarchy, right? Remember that when Israel and Judah become separate uh, uh, entities. I'm hoping no, I won't have it in here. Uh, when Israel and Judah become separate nations and separate entities. Uh, number two, they called the people. Here's our map to covenant faithfulness. So Israel and Judah they become two separate kingdoms. So there's David. He's the king of Israel, right? He's the king of the whole thing. His son Solomon is then the next king, but after Solomon's death, end of the 10th century, basically, beginning of the 9th century then, uh, after Solomon's death, his, Solomon's two sons divide the empire in half. One rules the south, uh, Rehoboam, one rules the north, Jeroboam, and one, the north is Israel, the south is Judah. And by the way, the nation of Israel never existed again until 1948. Just so you know, from about the end of the 10th century, there's no such thing as Israel, I'm sorry, uh, uh, when Israel was conquered in 721 B.C. Then, all right. Uh, then there was never another uh, Israel. It was Judah, things like that. All right. So now you get the rise of the prophets shortly thereafter, somewhere along these lines. The first two are Elijah and Elisha, right? And again, maybe there were prophetic voices before this point in time, but in all reality, Elijah is the father of the prophets. And again, right? We understand Moses was a prophet. That's true. That's why you see Moses and Elijah so often in the prophetic literature and the apocalyptic literature. Moses represents the law. Elijah is the first of the prophets. Okay. All right. They call the people to the obedience to the covenant, right? And what's, what book of the Bible is the covenant? Deuteronomy. All right. So if you've been in our Old Testament course, Deuteronomy is the central book of the Old Testament. Deutero, I think we mentioned this last week, right? Deutero uh, means second. Animas means law. It's the second law. That's the law the Israelites took into the promised land. And that's the, all right. The covenant says, if you obey my laws, I will bless you. If you don't obey my laws, I will curse you. And the primary curse is being kicked out of the land. The primary blessing then is you'll be blessed in the land. Land is, is central to the, to the covenant. Uh, now, there's also rise, number three, in condemnations of injustices against, the social, against social oppression. I guess that's not worded very well. Uh, injustices of social oppression, right? The oppressing of the poor, things of that nature. Here we go. Point number one on the top of page 14. Tell me if I'm going too quickly here, right? Just trying to do an introduction. Um, and uh, let me go to Isaiah. Actually, I think I have Micah already up on the screens uh, on my computer, so I'll bring it up. Micah 2, 1 through 3. There we go. This is Micah, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Woe to those who scheme iniquity, who work out evil on their beds. When morning comes, they do it. For it is in the power of their hands. Who's he speaking to? Who's he speaking about? Who's he speaking about? 
the wealthy, the powerful. It's in their hands. It's the ones who have power. They covet fields and they seize them. And houses, and they take them away. They rob a man in his house. A man in his inheritance. Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. I think I have verse 17, but it really kind of goes back earlier in the chapter. Verse 17. Learn to do, to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. This is the introduction to the book of Isaiah. And of course, the whole point of this passage is that they haven't been doing this. All right, number two on your outline. Jeremiah especially details the neglect of the widow, the orphan, and the alien. Jeremiah 7, 5 and following. And this passage might be very familiar to you. Let's see if you can recognize why. Here we go. I want to go back to verse 3. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. I'm in Jeremiah 7, verse 3. Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. And the place is the temple. Okay? Amend your deeds and your, way, your ways and your deeds, and I'll let you dwell in the temple. Do not trust in deceptive words, saying, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, the widow, or, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods to your own ruin, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave your fathers forever and ever. Um, and, of course, you recognize this passage because verse 11, Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers? This is the passage that Jesus was quoting when he overturns the money changers' tables and wreaks havoc, the Gospels. Right? So what's Jesus doing? He's saying, you're not practicing these things. Right? And if you were in our Mark study, you noticed how, how, where the, the widow uh, is so central to the section of, of Mark 11, 12, and 13 uh, also, and you see the condemnation. So the prophets then are speaking up against the, the oppression. Now the irony, of course, is that the people of Israel were called to be a light unto the nations, and yet they're oppressing their own people. The poor amongst them are, are, are being oppressed. They also oppressed the aliens. Ezekiel 22. I'll, I'll bring it up here on the computer very briefly. If you want to turn over, it's a few pages uh, away. Ezekiel uh, 22, verse 7 and verse 9. They have treated father and mother lightly within you. The alien they have oppressed in your midst. The fatherless and the widow they have wronged you. You've despised my holy things, profaned my Sabbath. Slanderous men... Actually, I want to skip down to verse 22, don't I? Right? No, 29. All right, let me go, scroll down a little bit. The people of the land have practiced oppression and committed robbery. They have wronged the poor and the needy and have oppressed the sojourner without justice. All right, so here's, you know, remember Israel was supposed to be a light in the nations. The nations were going to come into Israel, and the answer is, well, they're coming in and you're oppressing them. This ain't working out too well. All right? Uh, in Malachi 3, verse 5, also. All right, so there's kind of an introduction. The prophets are saying you're not adhering to the covenant, right? to, to the stipulations in Deuteronomy, and of course, you're going to be in trouble if you don't. Okay, now let's go to the issue of prophecy in general for a second, and then we'll work our way back to the Old Testament prophecy. Any questions, comments, Senator Marks? Good, here we go. Capital A under, prof, under, under the next heading of prophecy. Do all prophecies come to pass 
just as they are read, or are they contingent? Right, contingent means that there's, looks like this, if you do this, then you will do that, then I will do that. All right, that's a contingency, right? Okay. You know, Dad, can I go out and play? If you do your chores, then you can go out and play. All right, your ability to go out and play is contingent on the first thing being met. All right, that's a contingency. See, one of the questions that we have with prophecy is, well, quote, what about all the unfulfilled prophecies in the Bible? What do we do with them? All right, now, some who are very zealous and, 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 and in a good sense, no problem, are, look, this prophecy's never been fulfilled. This one's never been fulfilled. And God can't lie. They, they all must find some level of fulfillment. Uh, well, the, question, the first question is, well, maybe it will never be fulfilled because the prophecy itself was contingent. In other words, God said, I'm going to do this, but of course, all the while, if something else happened, then God would say, okay, I won't do that. All right? um, and the, next, um, the, the first two points, here we go. Number one, sometimes God reverses a threatened judgment or an offer of blessing. Sometimes he softens that offer of blessing or judgment, and at other times, he increases the offer of blessing or judgment. So sometimes he says, okay, never mind, I won't do it. I was going to bless you, I won't. I was going to curse you, I won't. Sometimes it's like, I'm going to bless you even more, or I'm going to curse you even more, or, you know what, I'll let it go, but I'll bless you only a little bit. Point number two, Jeremiah 18. This is just the easiest passage to go to. It's pretty clear. And the answer is, prophecies, generally speaking, are contingent, but I'll, I'll give you some rules to work by here in a minute. All right, here you go. Jeremiah 18. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. If that nation, against which I have spoken, turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. Or at another moment, I may speak concerning a nation or a kingdom or a people, uh, to or a kingdom, to build up or to plant it. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good with which I had promised to bless it. Are prophecies contingent? Yes. Yes. I might have promised to bless this nation, and then they did evil. <laughs> no way, I'm not doing it. I might have promised to curse this nation, and then they repented, and, okay, guess what, I'm not doing, all right, without looking at your notes, what's the best example of this in the Bible? Where God didn't follow through on a promise, I'll give you a hint, it's a curse, of a, a promise cursing. Okay, well, technically he just postponed that punishment. Yeah, it, it was Genesis, right? And, and it was the, uh, in the day you do it, you will die. Of course, some will say, well, they did die because they were separated from God by being kicked out of the garden. All right. He meant drop dead, and they didn't drop dead. He did postpone the judgment. So, yes. Jonah. Yeah, Jonah. Right? And this is on your notes. Uh, number four. The most famous example of this is Jonah. All right? Um, I'll bring it up on the screen if you want. It's worthwhile, by the way, memorizing the books of the Bible so that when you go to these small, minor prophets, you know, most of us are, are pretty good in the New Testament, and I'm pretty good with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But when I get to... Jonah, Micah, name Habakkuk. Okay, whatever. I, I lose track of it. So, um, it, it doesn't hurt to look them up uh, and, and become familiar with them. Jonah chapter 3. Ah, 
No, because I'm not sure that we put that under the garb of a prophecy. That's a command. Right? The, the question, if you're listening on tape, was, Jonah, uh, was Abraham offering up Isaac, and then he didn't actually kill him. No, he, it wasn't a prophecy to do that. It was a command to go do that. So, yeah, but, but good idea. All right. Uh, let's see. Uh, verse 2, arise, God tells Jonah, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. Jonah arose, and he went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord, after, like, a lot of fight. We're in chapter 3 now, by the way. He's been swallowed by a fish, and okay, he finally obeys. He arose and goes to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Jonah began to go to, uh, through the city one day's walk, and he cried out, Yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. They called a fast, put on sackcloth, from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. And he issued a proclamation and said, In, in Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. Excuse me, sackcloth. Let them call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hand. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we, may not, that we shall not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity with which he had declared upon, he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Now note back in verse 4, there's no contingency stated. This is, as far as we can tell, there's nothing contingent here. No, no, hey, go tell him in 40 days, I'm wiping him out. But he doesn't wipe him out. He didn't say, unless they repent. He just said, I'm wiping them out. Now again, you know, so, sometimes we have this idea, oh, well, God can't lie and he can't be mistaken. If he says he's going to wipe them out in 40 days, he has to wipe them out in 40 days. It's assumed that it's because they're at wickedness and evil. I almost said ickedness, because that was like evil and wickedness combined. So, um, or weevil. All right, uh, it's kind of their ickedness and their weevil. It's assumed that that's the case. So therefore, if they repent, then God will relent. If you repent, God will, God will relent. All right. Let's see. Uh, I'll skip over that. All right. So capital B. There are three kinds of prophecies. And again, we've got to be careful here because we can never be certain that any prophecy fits cleanly or perfectly into one of these three categories. But basically, here's, here's point number one. Everyone see where I'm at? There are conditional prophecies. where The prophecy explicitly says, if you do this, then you will get this. In other words, it's clearly contingent because God says, if or unless. Okay? Right. Secondly, there are prophecies that have a divine oath. Thus says the Lord, I swear by myself I will do this. All right? And then the third kind, down to point number three, are prophecies without qualification, like what we saw in Jonah. Tell Nineveh, in 40 days I'm going to do this. All right? So the first kind has a clear if, or a clear unless. It's clearly conditional. Right? The second kind has a divine oath. God says this. Right? Now, the first kind is easy, right? Because it's obvious what it is. I won't bother Isaiah 1 passage, but we'll skip, we'll skip over. Number two, uh, they have a divine oath. And here's, basically, here's the rule on, on divine oaths. It's going to happen, and you can't do anything about it. It doesn't matter if you repent. It doesn't matter if you start doing evil. God's going to do something. God's going to do this. All right? Yes. 
No, that's the point number three. Yeah, right? If it doesn't have a contingency, did God actually do it? No, because Jonah didn't have a contingency, but God didn't do it. In other words, the contingency wasn't stated. It doesn't say, unless they repent. It just says, tell them I'm going to wipe them out in 40 days. But then they repent. But he, still, but he doesn't do it. He doesn't wipe them out. So, that, Jonah falls under, under number three. Yeah, everything in number one, yes. It's all, if they did this, then they get this. If they don't do this, then they don't get that. Yes. That, 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 those are pretty easy. That's correct. Okay. Number two, there's a divine oath. And, and basically, uh, Jeremiah 7, for example, uh, God, Yahweh is God's divine name. God doesn't even say, God, God actually says, don't even bother praying for the city. Don't pray for them, because I'm not listening. They're not allowed to pray. All right. Uh, Yahweh's divine oath in Isaiah 54. Other examples of divine oaths. I gave you four or five references there. Uh, Jeremiah 15, verse 1 says that God would not relent even if Moses and Samuel were to stand before him. So when it comes with a divine oath, it's going to happen. Well, it's this third category then, prophecies without qualifications, that kind of raises this questions. All right? And the problem is this. There are many instances where the predicted act did not take place. There are lots of them where the predicted act did not take place. Right, so what do we do with that? At the top of the next page is Jonah, of the Chronicles passage, and then 2 Kings. So we'll move on down. Why do they not happen? Well, this is from a buddy of mine who's, who's more of an Old Testament scholar, much more than I am. And, and he, he used the phrase... Uh, which I think he got from another scholar, but anyways, I'll give him the credit. Uh, intervening historical contingency. In other words, there's a, the, the, it was a contingency that you didn't know about. It wasn't stated, but it was assumed. And, and you'll understand why this is obviously going to be the case when we go a little bit further. You know, what's the purpose of the prophets? What are they trying to do? All right? um, and, uh, but bottom line is, in this case, the, the, the contingency is repentance. It's repentance. In other words, the, purpose, the question is this, what's the purpose of prophecy? And let, me kind of go, let me kind of take us to this direction now. Is the purpose of prophecy for God simply to predict what's going to happen in the future? No. And if that's our concept of prophecy, it's false. Okay? Most Christian evangelical understanding of prophecy is God's predicting the future. Not true. That is, a, that, is a, that is seriously mistaken. Now, there is an element of prophecy where God's predicting the future. All right? A predictive element to it. But the purpose of prophecy is to exhort the people to act in the present. Thus, God says, I'm going to do this, should serve as a warning to you. And if you repent, he might not do it. Right? Well, look at the people of Nineveh. Who knows? He may relent. Now, notice they didn't say, okay, if we repent, he won't do it to us. Right? Because then, of course, your repentance is totally self-centered. I'm repenting so that he won't do it to us. I'm not repenting because I truly desire to repent and I'm sorry for my sins. Right? It's, let's repent and maybe God will relent. Maybe God will show us mercy. Right? The prophets were far more concerned with the conduct of the people to whom they were speaking. Now, that's extremely important. In other words, they were not predicting things 500 years from now. Maybe they were, but that wasn't their goal. Their goal was to speak into the present, all right, and the, present and, and the life of the people, and they wanted the people to repent. 
All right, yes. Oh, yes. That's right. Um, let me see one second here. I think, Ray, I'm going to get, I, I think I'm covering that later. Uh, all right, so let, I'm try, I think I'm getting ahead of myself. Let, let's, let's hold on a little bit. Right, um, Ray, Peter, whatever, Peter, Peter, Ray. I'm like, as soon as I said Ray, I'm like, that's wrong. But your last name, Mr. Ray. So here we go. Okay. Now, uh, how, can we, how often can we expect this? The question, the answer is, anytime there isn't an obvious qualified prediction. So it's all unqualified prophecies are subject to this. Meaning, if it doesn't come with an oath, then you can assume that it may or may not happen depending on what the people do. The, the goal, the, right, just like a good sermon, the prophet's speaking to his people that day and he wants them to act or behave in a certain way. All right, so, make sense? All right, what about Deuteronomy 18, where fell prophets, uh, uh, predictions mark false prophets? How do we know uh, when to stone someone? All right. Um, and the answer is Moses knew full well that there were historical contingencies, and so did everybody else. The prophecy could be judged with the understanding of contingencies. In other words, if, you re- if they don't repent and then it doesn't happen, then that's a false prophet. So if they do repent, hey, it may or may not happen. Make sense? Now, there are still some other prophecies, by the way. You see, what about those unfulfilled prophecies? Well, a lot of the end times paranoia people, how's that? Is that okay? All right. You know, the, the sensationalists, they're going to go quote all, ki- all kinds of prophecies that have never been fulfilled, and I'm going to say, oh no, those are clearly fulfilled. So there's actually a dispute on what's been fulfilled or not. Prophecies about the temple, for example. Jesus is the temple of God. And if you look carefully, you'll notice he's actually quoting some of these particular prophecies about the temple uh, that, that are unfulfilled prophecies about the temple, and hence people say, Oh, there, therefore, there must be a, f- a future temple that's to be rebuilt. The answer is no, those are all fulfilled in Jesus. So other prophecies just didn't happen because they were contingent. They were depending on whether the people repented uh, or if they stopped doing good, then God didn't bless them as promised. Make sense? We're okay with that? Yes? All right, here we go. Four major themes of the prophets. Right, and I gave you lots of references here in the notes so you can kind of go home and do some more work on this. First, one of the most basic themes of the prophets is that of coming judgment. There's an immediate concern for most prophecy is to condemn wicked behavior and then to threaten punishment and in doing so, to encourage them to repentance. Remember, they're covenant enforcers. So, act in accordance with the covenant. If you do, you'll be blessed. Oh, you're not doing so. Well, guess what? That means punishment's coming your way. So, this is why prophets don't really arise until after the divided kingdom. Because now, you're getting these two kingdoms, they're starting to move away from the law, move away from the covenant, and all of a sudden the prophets have to come up and say, ah, you need to go back, you need to go back, you need to go back. Now, again, there were prophets, you know, Nathan's a prophet, there were exceptions, but the rise of what we call prophets, the prophetic office really comes at this point in time. Uh, overall, all right. Letter A, prophets were prophets of judgment, but their words of judgment were often warnings, unless accompanied by an oath. Then it was not just a warning, it was going to happen. Prognostication, not predicting of the future, was not 
the main point. And, and that's essential. That is not what the prophets were about, making predictions. Uh, it speaks to the nature of Scripture in general, prophecy in specific. God wants us to act. He's not concerned that we know something simply so that we know it or so that we'll be, we won't be surprised when it happens. Instead, he informs us so that we can do something, namely be ready with our lives, repent, preach, etc. All right? And then the notion of judgment, if they fail to repent, is one of the key themes of the prophets. All right? And then I gave you some examples. All right? Judgments often include Israel's enemies. And I, I'll get it, Mark. And I gave you some more examples of that also. So this is the first thing. There are prophets of judgment, but the purpose of judgment was to get the people to respond, to get them to obey. Make sense? Now, secondly, okay, this is actually B. Uh, this, there's four themes. We're still under, under theme number one. Under theme number one, we have uh, the theme of coming judgment. All right, so here we go. Small b on top of page 16. Right, message of the prophets before the exile. Again, just to make sure we all know, exile is when the people of Israel are kicked out of the land for disobeying the covenant. We've talked about this in numerous other classes, but I think we're okay with that, right? The people are, are deported. They're exiled. All right, two different exiles. The northern kingdom of Israel happens in 721 B.C., and the southern kingdom of Judah happens in 605 and 586. Okay? 605 is when they're exiled. That's when Daniel... All right, probably even Ezekiel and some of the prophets, that's when they're carried away. That's why Daniel grows up in, or lives in Babylon, because he's sent in exile. 586, that second date there, is when the Babylonians came in and kind of finished the job. Most notably, they destroyed the temple. The, the people of Israel, still, or, or of Judah, kind of still were disobeying, and so the Babylonians came in and said, okay, good. We, we had mercy last time, but not this time. All right. By the way, from that date, the Ark of the Covenant has been missing and has never been found, even though I, you know, that, They've got it in Ethiopia. I, I got a copy at my home too. But uh, they got it. You know, I don't know if you heard all those speculative. You guys ever heard that one? The Ethiopia. You don't know? The, it's it's in Ethiopia. That's that's like the most viable one. No good. Whatever. Anyways, it's gone. Um, Isaiah and Jeremiah. These are basically the prophets of. Okay, the, the, who are before the exile, uh, predicting the coming judgment. So point number uh, small one underneath B. Most prophets prior to the exile, whether it's Isaiah prior to 721, or whether it's Jeremiah prior to 605. Does that make sense? Most of the prophets before the exile spent their time exhorting people to repent. They rebuked sin and they warned of the coming judgment. This is all under that major point number one. These prophets believed that forgiveness would take place during the exile. Right? Okay, here's the deal. You're not going to obey? Guess what? When you are carried away, then... Maybe you'll repent, and then maybe forgiveness will take place. But this was predicated on repentance. Okay? Let, let me stop and, and see if I can give you a good example. Daniel chapter 9. This is probably, I don't see it on the notes anywhere. So this is, this is bonus material. This is, you didn't pay for this, but I'm going to give it to you anyways. For the reality that we might. Daniel chapter 9. Okay? The prophet Jeremiah Right before 605 B.C., maybe 609 B.C., it was pretty obvious that the Babylonians were going to come in and there wasn't going to be much stopping them. Jeremiah said that God's going to carry you away for 70 years into exile. Okay? So now Daniel goes, verse 1 of Daniel chapter 9. In the first year of Darius, 
the son of Asuerus of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign. Okay, stop. What's so important? The first year. How do you know? Because he repeated it. And they don't repeat things like that in ancient literature. It's just, you know what I'm talking about? He says twice the first. So what does Daniel want you to know? He wants you to know what year it was. And he's assuming that you know what year it is. Now, we have to go back and check the historical records and figure it all out. Well, guess what? It's about 539 B.C. That's about 70 years after Jeremiah made the prophecy. That's 67 years after the Babylonians deported the southern kingdom of Judah. And Jeremiah said that the the exile will last 70 years. Now, it's 70 years. But Daniel knows full well that if we don't repent, God's not going to bring us back after 70 years, even though Jeremiah never says that. Jeremiah says, you're going to be carried away and sent in exile for 70 years. We have to go, we have to assume that you can come back after 70 years as long as you repent, even though it doesn't say that. But Daniel knows that full well. Now look what Daniel does. Verse 2. I observed in the books the number of years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, i.e. the 70. For the completion of the desolation of Jerusalem, name of 70 years. Uh, so I gave my attention to the Lord to seek of my prayer, supplications, fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Daniel's fasting and praying for the nation. Because the nation hasn't repented yet. I prayed and I confessed and said, Alas, O Lord God, great and awesome are you. Verse 5, we have sinned. Verse 6, we haven't listened. Ah, but righteousness belongs to you. Verse 7. See what's happening? This chapter is Daniel's prayer of repentance. Now, at the end of the chapter, long story short, we'll do Daniel next fall um, and look at it more carefully. What happens? The angel Gabriel comes to Daniel and says, Daniel, guess what? The day you started praying, your prayer was heard. But guess what? 490 years are decreed for your people. The punishment of 70 years is being increased sevenfold. Which, by the way, and we'll look at this in our Daniel study next year. If you want to make a note, read Leviticus 26. Leviticus 26 predicts the fact that the people of Israel will be carried away and says, if you don't repent, your punishment will be increased seven times. And it says that about five or six times in that chapter. So just read through Jeremiah 26. Daniel knows both Jeremiah and Leviticus 26. And Daniel's going, uh, maybe if I repent, it'll be good enough. And the angel says, your prayer was heard, but 490 years of decree for your people. So, yeah, very uh, briefly, EJ. Okay, yeah. Uh, very briefly here, if I can. Uh, the, the statement is, you know, what's the sense of making it so long? After 100 years, it's, it's like new generations of people, and, and they're still suffering for the sins of their grandparents. All right, and the answer is, but we have to read the scriptures as this one big story and see God's plan of redemption. All this is pointing to the Christ. It doesn't matter how many years it is until Christ comes. So it could have been 20 years, that's fine. But it could have been 500 years. Whatever it might be, that, that's one big picture answer to that. Uh, the other, of course, would be the people of God have to learn. All right, And that is, why are we here in Babylon? Because our great-grandparents disobeyed. So maybe if I repent, and if I return to my, turn to my ways, 
God will, be fit, will bless me, even if it doesn't mean I don't get to go back to the land for 500 years. It doesn't matter how long it is I go back to the land. I'm here in exile because this is what the prophet said would happen. Or what Deuteronomy said would happen. So I, I think that's there also. How's that? Okay, let's move forward if I can. Forgiveness would take place during the, during the exile. Uh, this was predicated on repentance. They didn't repent, as we now noticed. Daniel does. So the exile was extended. All right? And again, we'll talk about apocalyptic literature next week. So don't, just word of caution, don't take the numbers too literally here. We're in, we're in an apocalyptic literature, and we've got to be careful with that. We'll look at that next week. All right, uh, no, let's see. Number three, through. after this, Israel will be restored to the land. Jeremiah, Ezekiel 36. Uh, this idea has several sub-themes. Okay? The, the theme is Israel comes back to the land. All right, sub-theme number one. There'll be a, a remnant of Israel that will, that will return. Sub-theme number two. God will be rebuild the temple and the city of Jerusalem. Number three, there'll be a new covenant and true obedience. Uh, if I can jump forward very, very briefly, the answer is fulfilled by Jesus, fulfilled by Jesus, fulfilled by Jesus. Remember the, uh, the, John the Baptist? Don't say that we have Abraham as our father. God can bring up children from Abraham from these stones. So, but you have to repent. Notice how the message is repentance. If you don't repent... You can't be restored. So the, God, the New Testament begins with repentance. Why? Because it's saying the exile is over. But if you want in, you have to repent. But now repentance doesn't discriminate between Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female. All can come in. That's the regathering of the remnant of Israel. All right? Jesus says in Matthew, uh, I want to say it's 11, uh, um, many will come from east and west and recline with me at the feast of Abraham. That's... Old Testament language for the banquet of Israel. All right, second thing, rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. But he was speaking of his body. And the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, is explicitly quoted by Jesus at the Last Supper. This blood is the blood of, my new, of, my, uh, of the new covenant. So I would say fulfilled by Jesus. All right, next sub point here. Israel does not heed the prophet's warnings. So in 721, the Assyrians destroyed the capital of, uh, of Israel. Uh, the southern kingdom is given some more time, but in 586, the temple has been destroyed. Is that good? We're okay? Point number two. Remember the four key themes of the prophets. The second theme now is the theme of restoration after judgment. And we kind of already touched on that in that last point, but, but here we go. This is the message of the prophets Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Obadiah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Now, you'll note that some of these prophets are in both categories. What do I mean? Well, go up to the top of, the, of page 16, and some of the same prophets are listed there. Jeremiah is a prophet of warning and of doom. But Jeremiah is also a prophet of hope, of, of restoration after the exile. So they kind of go in both categories. Does that make sense? The restoration is, a period is primarily led by the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, right, and kind of Malachi. But their message was for the people of God to learn from their past, uh, past mistakes, to repent, and to restore Israel back to its original covenant. Namely, of course, their focus on the temple. So Haggai and Zechariah are, are like vital uh, prophets uh, in that sense. Does that make sense? So, uh, um, okay, well, I think that's good enough. Okay, here we go. Next page. Okay, uh, top of page 17. The people of God are more concerned with restoring their own houses than with, building, than with rebuilding the temple. So that's a problem. Um, the theme of the prophets during this time was, this could be our time if we get our act together, yet they never did. 
So the prophets began now to look forward to a future restoration that would happen a long time from then. That gets back to, to Peter's question, or, or Peter's comment. All right? In other words, so here's the deal. You get the first set of prophets. You're going to be sent in exile if you don't obey. Okay, you don't obey. They're sent in exile. Then you get another group of prophets. The answer is, um, God's going to be faithful and restore us. And then they don't really repent. And they don't really get their act together. And they kind of come back to the land, but they're still in a foreign domination. They still haven't repented. They don't really care about rebuilding the temple. Okay, guess what? The prophets now say, there'll be a time in the future when God will bring the ultimate restoration. Haggai 2.9 says, the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. See, Haggai was trying to get them to rebuild the temple, and they were rebuilding their own houses. When they finally did build the temple up, it was a box. They literally built the absolute minimum requirement. They put a box up. So Haggai says, the latter glory will be greater than the former. He predicts a future time. And now we're looking into the future and saying, this time is not it. Why? Well, that's kind of judgment, isn't it? It's, you, didn't, you don't get the blessings because you haven't been faithful. And now the prophets begin to look beyond this time. And of course, I think to, to Christ. Does that make sense? But again, not to predict the future, but to chastise the people in the present. To rebuke them in the present. Okay? See, it's important to note that the prophets only look forward once they realize that their present was not getting any better. In other words, their primary concern was the present times, not the prediction of future events. There's Jeremiah, that you're going to have like 70 years. Daniel says, uh-oh. He repents. It's increased seven times. Haggai and Zechariah announced that Daniel's increase uh, in punishment may, may be lessened if they repent. Everyone tracking with that okay? All right, very well. All right, two more themes, very briefly here. Third is the theme that the nations will one day be converted also. The nations will one day be converted also. And look at all the references in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 2, which says that the nations will flow upstream like a river to Jerusalem. But Jerusalem's on the top of a hill, and rivers don't flow upstream. But he has this beautiful metaphor of the river coming and flow, and all the nations are flowing upstream to the city of Jerusalem. All right? Uh, Micah 4, uh, etc. Alright, the fourth theme is the theme of the restoration of all creation. Okay? So, warning for judgment, right? Theme number one. Theme number two, then, restoration after the judgment. Theme number three is the restoration of uh, the, na- the inclusion of the nations. Theme number four is the restoration of all creation. Very well? Okay, we've got a few more things left to do here in prophets, and then we'll try to do the, as much as we can on the Gospels, but let's take a quick break. How's that? So very briefly here to finish up our thought on prophets and prophecy. And I'm spending a lot of time on this, a little bit with obviously some level of thoroughness, including a lot of extra references for you to look up, because this is one of the most misunderstood and interpreted genres there is. You know, law is what it is. Most people just don't even do anything with it, which is tragic as we talked about last week. Historical books are not that difficult, even though their way of writing history is not our way of writing history, so we have to be careful about that. Uh, We can do okay with that. Uh, But prophecy is just so commonly misused and abused, um, and then all these end-time speculations and things like that that come about from it, uh, I think is somewhat uh, tragic. So here we go. The, The language of the prophets, capital D. 
They express themselves in highly metaphorical language. Now, remember last week we talked about poetry. All right? And I mentioned the fact that there's a large portion of the Old Testament in poetry. That includes the prophets. So you think you're reading the prophets, and they're just going to state all these facts. But then when you look carefully at the passage, it's in poetic, well, just randomly opening my Bible, there you go to the book of Amos, and look, there's narrative, there's poetry. According to my, according to my translators the, of the New American Standard Bible, right? And, and you look on the next page. There, there's narrative, there's poetry. There's narrative, there's poetry. And in all honesty, sometimes they don't know when it starts and when it stops. You know, which, what's poetry, what's not. But the reality is, they're mixing this language then, and it makes it difficult to understand. Prophets use cosmic upheaval language, which I'll, descri- I'll talk more about next week when we do apocalyptic, assuming we get to apocalyptic next week, but we'll try to. Basically, the sun will be darkened, the stars will fall from the sky. That's cosmic upheaval language. Does that make sense? You know, destruction of the cosmos. Okay, that's not nuclear bombs raining down. How's that? Uh, and you can see it in the fall of Babylon, Egypt, prophecy in, in Joel, things like that. All right, cosmic judgment language, uh, point number two, and I gave you a whole bunch of references for that. And then I noted, such language does not have to mean the actual end of time. Okay, and here's the deal. If you have cosmic upheaval language, stars falling, the moon becoming blood, the sun being darkened, that's like the end of the world, isn't it? And the prophets use this end of the world language. I call it cosmic upheaval language. Because end of the world language means it's the end of the world. And the answer is, no, it's not. Three-year-old's cupcake falls on the ground, and it's the end of the world. How's that? A, a, a pithy illustration, but you get the point. Sometimes it's like the end of the world to us, right? You know, when you're 16 and the girl breaks up with you, it's the end of the world. And then two weeks later, you get another girlfriend and all's fine and dandy, all right? You know, that's just the teenage life, all right? So the prophets are also describing these events as though they are the end of the world. That doesn't mean it's the end of the world. And here again, where our modern-day prophetic pundits kind of, I think, go astray. They take this end-of-the-world-like language literalize it, and therefore assume that that must be fulfilled in the last days, right? in the future. Even though Joel 2 was fulfilled by Christ and the Spirit's coming at Pentecost. Peter quotes it. Joel 2, 28-32 is quoted by Peter in the book of Acts. I'll pour out my Spirit upon all mankind, and the sun will become darkened and the moon will turn into blood. That's the end of the language, end of the world language, but it's not end of the world. Alright, so here we go. Prophecy encourages us by pointing us to the victorious God who has already won the heavenly battle. That's especially in the New Testament now. Time frames. The prophets use the language of nearness. This is another problem that I think we have with prophecy. They use language of nearness. Isaiah 13, which is dated between 740 and 701 B.C. And Habakkuk 2, which is dated between 609 and 598 B.C. Both speak of impending judgment of Babylon, which occurred in 539 B.C. Now, for Isaiah, it was 200 years later. For Habakkuk, it was still 60, 70 years later. But it was impending. So, again, do it as you will. All right, note, Hebrews 12 claims that the coming of Christ fulfilled Haggai 2, verses 6 and 7. 
But Haggai was prophesying in 520 BC and said that it would happen in a little while. So a little while was 550 years. So again, you have to be careful with language and dates, things like that. All right. Uh, how about the word end? The, qu the question becomes, the end of what? We see the end and we think it's the end. Like of everything. Um, and the answer is this. Amos and Ezekiel declare that the end has come, but Amos had the northern kingdom in mind and Ezekiel had the end of the southern kingdom in mind. Not the end of the world. Neither one of them had the end of the world in mind. So again, we have to be careful with, with the language that that's being used there. Make sense? Okay. Now, as far as I'm, by the way, the, the language of nearness in the New Testament is another to totally different question. So I, I have not addressed the language of nearness in the New Testament, at least directly anyways, uh, here. This is primarily looking at the Old Testament prophecies and prophets. Um, I'll talk about prophets and prophecy in the New Testament uh, in the First Corinthians class tonight. So if you're not in that class, pay attention or stay late or whatever. Uh, but we'll talk about a prophecy there uh, also. Okay? Any questions, comments, or standard remarks? Bill? Because that was regular. Yeah, the question is, why, why didn't they just speak regular? Why, why are they talking language without talking? That's just because that was regular. That's the way the prophets spoke. Okay? And, and why should we expect them to speak any other way than the way all the other prophets speak? Make makes sense? It's just... Yeah, please. The question is, do we have prophets in the church today? We'll talk about this more clearly in the First Corinthians class. We'll have more of a context to, to, to the answer. The question becomes whether you're speaking of the office. Uh, the office? That's office and prophet combined together. In case you're not sure, I, I like to combine words. The, the, office, uh, the office of prophecy or the gift of prophecy. Predominantly, we would say that the office of prophet does not exist but perhaps the gift of prophecy does exist. But again, prophecy is not to be defined as foretelling of the future. Definitely in the New Testament context. Now, why does the office of prophet not exist? Because that's what an apostle is. Apostles are Old Testament prophets. It's a new name. And apostles appears in the book of Ephesians. They are the foundation of the church. And therefore... Once they cease to exist, they cease to exist. There are no more apostles. And that's pretty universal. Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, by the way. Uh, uh, believe it or not, they, we all agree on that one. So. Uh, it's a little bit from Scripture, but it's a lot more from tradition. The last statement I just made, uh, the, the key statement, I think, is in Ephesians 2, where Paul says, apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church. And he seems to say them as though the two are one. It seems that that way. And then when you look at the office of apostle in the New Testament, it seems to correspond consistently with the role of the Old Testament prophet. So it, it, it is biblical in that sense, though it's not, it's not clear. And again, remember, you've seen this in our First Corinthians study, by the way, right? There are some things that are not clear because, like, everybody knew what I was talking about. It is clear then. It's only when we get removed from the context that it's, like, not as clear any longer. So I think if you, the best we can do is determine from that context it was pretty clear. And then, historically, the church is unanimous. And, and the only time you ever see somebody claiming that there's apostles today, it's almost always heretical. You know, good indication that those type of things. All right, moving along. Here we go, Gospels. Let me, move, let me just kind of, uh, I, I don't have a lot of notes for you here, so I'm going to do more talking of what's not on your outline than I am uh, what is in your, in uh, uh, what is in your, uh, whatever. Here we go. The Gospels are historical. 
They present themselves as history, Luke 1, 1 through 4, John 19, 35, contra the parables. All right, and we're not going to be able to get into parables tonight, I'm sure. All right, here we go. Um, but they're theological as well. Here's the reality. That's this. The Gospels are historical, right? In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea, inherited the Tetrarch of... Right. That's historical. He's giving us historical markers. That's Luke 3. To, to clearly identify when that event took place. But they also are theological, and that theology motivates the writing of their history. Oh, that's not good. What do you mean it's not good? Everybody does that. In other words, every historian has an objective. I'm telling you this because I want you to believe this. All right? If I think this, uh, these, uh, if I'm writing a, a history of the Civil War, I can't tell you every event that happened in the Civil War. So now what events am I going to tell you? The ones that I think you need to know in order to understand what the Civil War was really about. But I have an opinion as to what the Civil War was really about, don't I? And now I'm going to pick and choose the events that best confirm that. Now, again, my conviction of what the Civil War is really about might actually be true. It might really be what it was about. Now, of course, what you might want to do is read other historians of the Civil War and compare them. And go, well, that guy was pretty much right, but he was off a little bit here. Because this guy, you know, and you can, that's what you want to do. All right. All history is biased. It just is. It's impossible to write an unbiased history because otherwise you'd be detailing every event. And it's impossible. You'd have to be God to know that. All right. So the Gospels clearly are not absolute historical biographies because, well, two of them don't even have the birth of Christ. They start when he's an adult. Two that have the birth of Christ skip straight to his adulthood with the exception of one story in Luke. So you can see they have these theological objectives. Uh, John 20, 31, I write these so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And by believing, you may have life in his name. That's theological, isn't it? I'm writing this so you might believe. So he has a theological bias. The God, the, they're not strictly, you know, the fact that they ignore the childhood demonstrates that they're not strictly biographical. Um, number three, they're clearly not strictly chronological. They contradict one another in this regard. And, and we've talked about this in our gospel classes, if you've been in, been in those classes as well. The gospels do not intend to write chronological events. Matthew 13 has seven parables of Jesus, right? And I always joke, I don't think Jesus said, hey guys, it's parable day. And he just sat down and told them seven parables. The fact is that Matthew's combining or compiling these seven parables. A better illustration, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Where do you find that sermon in Luke's gospel? Everywhere. It's all over. The whole book. So you've got two possibilities. One, Jesus sat down and told the disciples this extended sermon that Matthew recorded. And Luke just cut it up and put it everywhere. Or two, Matthew compiled material from Jesus' teaching all over the place. Or three, a little bit of the above, of, of both. It's very likely they sat down and told them the story. And then he told them that one. And then another time he told them that one. And Matthew just combines them into one story. Uh, it, you know, when you look at Mark's gospel, Mark chapters um, uh, 2 and the beginning of 3, the conflict with the Pharisees is intense right from the start. By the beginning of chapter 3, by verse 6 of chapter 3, the Pharisees want to kill Jesus. We're only in chapter 3. I thought they didn't want to kill him until like later on. Mark is just fronting his story with this conflict. Right, right from the start, we have the conflict. Right, so you see that they never intended to write strictly chronological sequences of events, right? 
you know, there's that old question, you know, what do you do with um, Jesus' cleansing the temple or, you know, pronouncing judgment on the temple? In the Gospel of John, it happens in chapter 2. In the Gospel of Mark, it happens in chapter 11, the last week of his life. Which one's right? We don't know because the Gospel, we're not trying to tell us the order of event, the events in order. Obviously, by the way, there's a birth and there's a death. There's a resurrection, you know. There's some chronology in there that has to be kind of assumed in, in, in any story. Let's see. Here we go. John places the judgment of the temple at the beginning of his gospel, etc. All right, here we go. A brief run through of the gospels. Matthew's gospel. Let me kind of give you some major themes to help. This is not in your notes, so sorry about that. Um, some major themes to help you understand uh, um, what's the theological objective of the gospel writers. All right. Matthew wants to see several things. One, that in Jesus, the Old Testament promises are fulfilled. So that, that in Jesus, the Old Testament promises are fulfilled. He starts off his gospel with what we call five fulfillment passages. After the genealogy. The, there's the birth, uh, the announcement of the birth to Joseph. The virgin shall be with child. right? The birth in Bethlehem. Uh, you know, Herod slaughtering the children. You know, uh, and his escaping to Egypt. These are all to fulfill. And you'll see the word, this was to fulfill. This was to fulfill. So... He wants to show Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises or prophecies. All right. Secondly, he wants to show Jesus is the fulfillment of the story of Israel. Jesus is the fulfillment of the story of Israel. And you see that Jesus is, comes from the north. He comes down to the south. He's born in Bethlehem. Just as Abraham came from another country and settled in Hebron. Then he escapes to Egypt. Just as Israel escaped to Egypt. Then he comes out of Egypt and he's baptized. This is Israel came out of Egypt and was baptized. And if you're in our First Corinthians class, it says that, right? In First Corinthians 10, that Israel was baptized. Right? Then he goes out in, uh, into the wilderness where he's tempted by the devil. Just like Israel went out in the wilderness where they're tempted by the devil. Right? That's Matthew 4. Matthew 5, he goes up on a mountainside and gives his message, gives his sermon. Just like Moses went up on a mountainside after he went in the, into the desert. Right? So the story of Israel finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Alongside that, also I'd say... He wants us to see, Matthew wants us to see Jesus as the new Moses. He wants us to see Jesus as the new Moses. Um, and that's, uh, that's illustrated by the fact that Matthew has five sermons of Jesus. Five sermons of Jesus. Um, and I, um, I talked about this a little bit in my presentation at the uh, uh, conference on Christianity in the Middle East last year. So, uh, And that presentation is on my website if you want to get it. But those five sermons of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew are clearly marked. In other words, Matthew has very clear markers that tell you when the sermon ends. So, and that there's five. Why five of them? What's, that, what's the significance of that? The five books of Moses. The five books of Moses. How does the Gospel of Matthew end? With what, what's called the Great Commission, right? Where does Jesus give the Great Commission? On a mountainside. Where does Moses die? On Mount Nebo. What does Moses say? Go into the promised land. What does Jesus say? Go into all the nations. Right? By the way, the promised land has become the nations. See the fulfillment in Jesus. All right. And, and, all right. Mark's gospel. Uh, Mark has um, a, two major themes. Uh, one is he wants us to understand that Jesus is the Son of God. Okay? Now, Son of God's a loaded term. I won't define it too deeply here. Who, maybe another way of saying it is, who Jesus is. How's that? He tells us in verse 1, this is the good news of the birth of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So, that's who I'm telling you about. I want you to see who Jesus is. 
But as you read through the gospel, put yourself in the disciples' shoes. And now figure out, try to figure out who Jesus is. And Mark's going to take you on a journey. And the disciples are like, who is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him. That's chapter 4. Right? Interestingly, in chapter 1, the first confrontation with the demons, it's, I know who you are, the Holy One of God, Jesus of Nazareth. The demons know who he is from chapter 1. Chapter 4, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. So, this journey to show us who Jesus is. Yeah. The, the secrecy motif is, is overblown, I think. And what, what Chris is referring to is that, for example, he tells the demons, don't tell anybody. Be quiet, actually. Uh, he heals a man and then says, okay, don't tell anyone. Because in, in, in most instances in, Mar- in Mark's gospel, it's because we're in Israel. And remember, Mark has fronted the conflict with the religious leaders. So therefore, Jesus' life was already in jeopardy. And it seems to be, I've got to keep this down now. I can't make public who I am. And, and, and he reveals himself very incrementally and very carefully over time. So when somebody figures it out, it's like, okay, don't tell anybody yet. They'll, those guys will kill me now. I, I think that's most likely indeed what's happening. Make sense? The second key theme in the Gospel of Mark uh, is the theme of discipleship. What does it mean to be a disciple? All right, what does it mean to be a disciple? All right, let me uh, show you a couple quick references here. Mark chapter 1. Now, assuming you don't know anything else, God bless you. Uh, I do believe, as God bless you again, as most uh, scholars have come to conclu- conclude, uh, I kind of joined them late in the game, uh, Mark is the first gospel written. So you've never read Matthew, Luke, or John. Open up the gospel of Mark, verse 18. Jesus was going along the Sea of Galilee. He saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea for their fishermen. And he said, follow me. I'll make you become fishers of men. And they left their nets and followed him. Really? No questions? No, 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 no haggering? No, no, um, well, maybe, uh, I'm not sure. Can I wait? Right? Nope. Got up their nets and followed him. Matthew 2, uh, sorry, Mark 2, he comes up to a tax collector's booth and he sees Levi and he says, follow me. He jumps out of the tax collector's booth and follows him. What's the key feature of discipleship in Mark's gospel? You follow Jesus. And by the way, those are great preaching texts. Because it just says, follow me. Don't ask questions. Just jump out of the boat. James and John, a few verses later, leave their father in the boat. Dad, sorry. Now, we happen to know from reading John's gospel that these guys were waiting for Jesus. Because gospel of John says that these guys were followers of John the Baptist. And they were met Jesus already. And what we suspect is, Jesus said, okay, guys, go back up to Galilee, and when I'm ready, I'll come get you. And now he says, okay, guys, follow, okay, and, they, and they're ready to go. But Mark doesn't want us to read that into it, right? That makes it too soft, makes it too easy. He wants us to be confronted with, this is what it means when Jesus calls, you go. And of course, at climax in Mark 8, if you want to be my disciple, take up your cross and deny yourself and follow me, right? Which I think is Mark 8, 34 through 38. That's Mark. Let's see. Luke's Gospel. I would add a couple, uh, a couple things about Luke. Number one, uh, as far as Luke is concerned, uh, note that Luke wants us, 
Luke has fully, when you read Luke's gospel, be fully aware that he knows he's writing Acts. You cannot read Luke's gospel without Acts. Okay? And I think it's pretty clear that Luke knew he was going to uh, write both books from the beginning. So you have to take both of those in mind. Ultimately, in Luke's gospel, the, one of the major themes, which is kind of all the gospels, but here comes out of Luke, is the coming of the kingdom of God right? and what that means. Right? The coming of the kingdom of God and what that means. Right? And, and if you were here for the few weeks that I preached, you, you saw that in Luke's gospel a little bit uh, you know, with uh, Simeon and Anna and this great anticipation and this great expectation. And then that was Luke chapter 2. Chapter 3 had this great ex- expectation of John the Baptist. Luke chapter 4. Jesus goes into the synagogue and says, this is being fulfilled in your hearing. The gospel is being preached to the poor, the blind are seeing, etc. Right? This is what the kingdom of God looks like, this great restoration, uh, etc. All right, now, that means then, in Luke's gospel, that the gospel must be carried forth to the nations. Right? And Luke ends his gospel with this theme, carrying forth the gospel to the nations. And of course, he begins the book of Acts with this theme. He begins the book of Acts with this theme. One of the highly misinterpreted passages in the New Testament comes across here. Luke chapter 1. I'm sorry, I'm in Acts 1, verse 6. Lord, is it this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Remember, the end of Luke's gospel was, Go ye therefore to all nations, preach the gospel. The kingdom of God's come. Are you restoring your kingdom to Israel? Verse 7. It's not for you to know the times of the epics, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And people say, oh, Jesus' answer was, no, I'm not here to restore the gospel to Israel yet. I'll do that in the future. Like, how do you get that? The point is, I'm not telling you when. Just stay here. And when you're empowered, then you'll do it. The point is, Acts 2 and following is the fulfillment of all the promises. But you are not going to do it until you get the Spirit. I'm not telling you when the Spirit's come. It's not for you to know that stuff. Just stay here, and you'll be empowered as my witnesses to the ends of the earth. The witnesses to the ends of the earth is the promise of fulfillment. That's what we saw in the four key themes of the prophets. Point number two is God will restore them. Point number three is that's going to include the nations. Point number four is that's going to include all of rest, all of creation. And that's what the new, that's what the New Testament is all about. Does that make sense? So the kingdom of God has come in Luke. All right, very briefly here, John's gospel. I can do John's gospel in two minutes. That's like easy. Um, new creation. New creation. New creation, uh, right? The gospel begins with in the beginning. Now, again, a lot of us as Christians, and this way I was raised, oh, John's gospel is all about Jesus being God. Okay, well, that's true, but that's really not a key theme. Um, other than it's, you know, uh, maybe the, the revelation of God. And it wasn't to prove that Jesus was God. It was to prove that God was Jesus. Does that make sense? There's a subtle difference there. Actually, a radical difference there. No, it's that Jesus was God made known. God has made himself known. He's revealed himself. And in doing so, he's bringing about the new creation. That new creation is the restoration of Eden, right? Where God dwells with man. See, John says, we beheld his glory. Ah, that's what Adam and Eve beheld. That's what the priests in the temple beheld. And now we've begun to see it. 
the glory of the only begotten. So this great theme of this new creation, you know, John 19 and John 20 is this great theme of new creation. If you read John 20 in light of Genesis, John 20 is the resurrection account. And when they saw Jesus, they mistook him for a gardener because Adam was a gardener in the garden. And it was the first day of the week, which is the day of creation, isn't it, right? It says twice in John 20, it was the first day of the, of the week. And then later on in John 20, it says he breathed on them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. The same word used in the Greek version of Genesis 2 when God made Adam. He breathed on him and he became a living being. So Jesus is creating a new creation. So John has this great new creation language. Right, what does that mean? Very well. All right, now here's the plan. Next week we're going to cover parables, epistles, and apocalyptic. Yeah. And then, you know, if we need a little bit of time the last week, we can, we can finish up then. But what I want to do the last week is maybe A, answer any questions you might have about how do you interpret this or how do we interpret that. Uh, and B, just kind of talk nuts and bolts. How do we go about studying the Bible? I want to talk about resources and where to go, where not to go. I'll talk about word studies, like don't do them. Um, I'll t- and why I would say that. All right. I'll talk about translations of the Bible. You know, what are good translations and why might that be a good one versus that? You know, why does some like the King James and some not and things like that. So we'll, we'll kind of talk about like odds and ends stuff when it comes to practical studying of the Bible and how do you go about studying the Bible now. Make sense? All right, very well. So, Father, you commanded us to study and show ourselves to be approved workmen who do not need to be ashamed, but handle accurately the word of truth. And that is our heart's desire. We know that the word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. We know uh, that it is the means through which we are sanctified. And so we know that we need to handle it accurately. We know also that many false prophets will come. And they will attempt to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. So, Lord, we want to be faithful. Uh, We've given a lot of information tonight. uh, And I fear that it might just go right by us. So I pray that my brothers and sisters would somehow find the time in the next week to just kind of go over this again. Maybe to break out the the, the audio and take out their notes and just kind of follow along again. Um, Stop it. Stop the recording and look up some verses. And just really saturate themselves that they might... Uh, that we might become equipped to be faithful stewards of the Word of God. Thank you and praise you now for all things. We ask your grace upon our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.